29 years, and I felt like, uh, I don't know what I felt like, but I was staring at all the different diapers. I'm like, okay, I'll just get these, and I'm glad they had numbers, one and two. Anyway, I've got some seed diapers in there, help them to grow. Challenge, isn't it, Allison? This week's memory verse is from Romans chapter 10. If you look at it in your worship folder, um, I encourage you to think on God's Word during the week. We put these, we call them the fighter verses in here. Uh, it, it's supplied to us. We do have some bookmarks in the back if you want to keep up with the verses that are, are coming up in the future days, but we'll, we'll have some of these each week. On Wednesday, I'm going to talk about memory, uh, and it's a Bible meditation and memory. You can join us on Zoom on Wednesday uh, to be a part of that. Hiding God's Word in your heart is uh, a critical thing, particularly in this day and in the days to come. You don't always have to memorize it precisely word for word, but knowing the content and about where to find it. You'll find these resources will come back to help you in days ahead. It'll also help you to be able to help others to have a good word to share with someone else. And so I highly encourage you to participate this year in our memory program. And it isn't that you have to memorize (coughs) each verse, but we encourage you at least to meditate on it, to think about it, through the week, and I'm going to give you some uh, helpful ideas about that uh, this week. So I'll read this text for us and then pray for us corporately. But right now, I want you to take a moment privately where you're at to prepare your heart to worship Christ. I'll give you a moment privately, then I'll read this scripture, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we have gathered together to worship your holy name. We're thankful for your word that states that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that many will indeed call on the name of the Lord even this day and be regenerated in their heart. Grant them a newness of life in Christ. Your word goes on to tell us that how will they call on him whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I pray for each of us that we would be filled with indeed your good news, and preach and proclaim that truth in whatever environment we might find ourselves in in the days ahead. May we truly know you 
and the revelation of who you are from your word and be able to share that very testimony, scripture, to many that we come across in this new year. I pray for each of us that we would <coughs> proclaim Christ as Lord in ways uh, that uh, would be significant to those that indeed would hear and would need to hear this word to indeed to be saved. I pray that you bless us as, as you have indeed given us a, a tremendous gift to share with our mission partners. We pray for each one of them across this nation and the world, those that we particularly support, but others also that this morning are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And so we pray for each one of those that are going forth bearing this precious seed. I pray, Father, that you will cause new life in many, even this day, and bring about a nourishment and growth in grace and knowledge of you in, uh, in many others. May the earth redound to your great glory. May you raise up many sons and daughters in future days to sing your holy praise. We look and anticipate the soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on this side of glory, may your name be exalted now and forevermore. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand together. And let's turn to number one. And we'll sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise, exalt, and glorify the King of Heaven. Number one in our hymn books.
This morning, we'll be reading Psalm 88, Psalms 88 and 87 consecutively. We'll be reading them in that order for the sake of following the themes lament and praise. <clears throat> you can find these Psalms on page four, pages 494 and 495 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along with me. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. <clears throat> In Psalm 88, the psalmist is in deep despair and near death. In the midst of this despair, he is choosing to cry out to the right person. He is crying out to the Lord, who is salvation. In Psalm 87, the psalmist points us to Mount Zion, where the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, was crucified and rose from the dead. One day, he will reign physically over all the earth from that city. Zion is also used in Scripture at times to represent heaven. <clears throat> Last week, as he has many times, our pastor was explaining to us that the phrase born again from John chapter 3 has a double meaning in the Greek. It means again and from above, meaning from heaven. And I see the phrase in Psalm 87, this one was born there. And it drives me to ask the question of you. Have you been born from heaven? If you have not, you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even now, that it may be said of you, this one was born there. Let's read, starting in Psalm 88. <clears throat> a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonath, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O, o Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, and your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My, my companions have become darkness. <clears throat> now to Psalm 87. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. 
glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike all say, all my springs are in you. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that the spring of life from Mount Zion would be in us. I pray that the living water that only Jesus Christ can give would become in us a spring welling up to eternal life and given to others. May we give freely as it has been freely given to us. May we proclaim the salvation of the Lord. I pray that in our circumstances, whatever our difficulties, Lord, ultimately we would look to Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit not to fear this temporal life or to fear human beings, but to fear God alone. I pray that you would use us mightily in this time and the time to come, as long as it is called today, to proclaim your truth in love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus, keep me near the cross to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 20. 233. Jesus, keep me near the cross.
I love that. It's beautiful. That in the cross and so badly. This morning we're going to turn the page to a new chapter of the book of John. We've only got this one and one more. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Chapter 19 ended really on a somber note. Jesus has died on the cross. This cross of shame and suffering redounds, however, to the glory of God. This is why we can sing about the cross. It is an instrument of death, and yet we put it here behind us as a symbol, a reminder. And then we also have it here in our music as we sing. Because God will be glorified on this instrument of death. I'll read for you John chapter 12 and verse 27. Christ anticipating this suffering and receiving the fullness of God's wrath on the cross said, now my soul is troubled. Indeed it would be for anyone. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour. Save me from the cross, he's saying. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And everything, every detail, every part, as we have looked, came to this very hour, not just the event, but the time in which it occurred. Father, glorify your name. And that was the purpose of the cross, God to be indeed glorified. And here you have a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven in John 12. The Father himself audibly saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there, they heard it had said and that it had thundered. And some said that it had thundered, should I say. It, it was difficult for them to understand fully, but here was the audible voice of God speaking. Sounded like thunders. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Christ wanted to communicate to the people that indeed God would be glorified here, even in the cross, God doesn't speak audibly very much, but in Christ's ministry, there's three specific questions where the very voice of God thundered throughout the land. That is baptism in, in fulfilling and all righteousness in which he demonstrates taking on the transfiguration in which an element of Christ's glory is displayed, and here, confirming the very glory of the cross, three important events in Christ's ministry in which an audible voice of God actually spoke from heaven. The spectrum of glory displayed on the cross is really a full expression, if you will, of God's love. He sent his son to be the propitiation, that is the appeasement of God's wrath, the payment for it, our sins in full. 
The glory of the cross is the atonement provided by Christ Jesus. The only basis for forgiveness for anyone and ultimately between man and God. Mercy was displayed on the cross. God did not give to those who would trust Christ this penalty. Grace is displayed on the cross, his gift of giving the Son. Reconciliation between God and man was accomplished on the cross, which results in the peace that we have of God, peace with God and of God. And the joy that comes from Christ, the fullness of joy experienced in all eternity, accomplished here at the cross. Justification, where God could be the very righteous one and declare those who trust in Christ as righteous. Faithfulness in God will perform all that he has promised. It has been accomplished. Many, many more. No wonder Christ said in those immortal words, in a very loud voice, it is finished. When you look to the cross, remember, it has been accomplished. It is finished. Jesus suffered greatly. He was in great humility in just taking on human flesh and walking among us. He was not treated in the way in which he rightfully deserved. He has always been the king of glory. It was veiled in flesh, incarnate deity, if you will. We got a glimpse of his glory, and the Father even had to say something at that moment at his transfiguration. But Jesus Christ, bearing this pain, this great suffering, humiliated in the veiling of his glory, if you will, will no longer continue in that vein. It is finished. He will no longer be the suffering servant. He has fulfilled that requirement completely. Forevermore, he will be remembered as the very sovereign Lord who he is. This is the gospel that we preach and what we call people to do to repent and believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign. You get the first glimpse of that reality in how Christ is taken up, how his body is removed from the cross. It isn't yanked down. He is no longer the suffering servant. He is the sovereign Lord. It is not yanked down and discarded on a trash heap as most criminals would be from that day, the people that would be executed on the cross. Instead, his body then is claimed by a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea puts all of his uh, reputation, if you will, on the line to take this body and give it a royal burial, an honor. Another well-to-do and influential man, Nicodemus, comes along as well, bringing expensive items, spices, to anoint this body to give it great honor. Jesus Christ is no longer the suffering servant. It is finished. Now he will be honored as the sovereign Lord whom he always is. 1941 ends this way. Closing of the chapter. 
Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Do you see the honor then given to Christ now? He is now given this tomb, not a tomb that was used by anyone else, but he was the first in it, a rich man's tomb. As Isaiah had prophesied, if you remember in Isaiah 53, 9, he was with a rich man in his death. Of course he is. He's no longer to be despised and rejected by men. He is to be honored, and I will confess to you right now that every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue. Preach the word, call people to glorify the Son. They will in either their condemnation or in their salvation. Jesus is Lord. And God will glorify, has glorified, and will glorify. The resurrection then, as we come to in chapter 20, is the beginning of this revelation or disclosure of the glory of Christ beyond our imagination. As we read through this text, and I'm just going to look at the first 10 this morning in chapter 20, you're going to see the glory of Christ unfold. Look for that as we read through. And I'll begin at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they didn't understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us insight into your word. Send your Holy Spirit to truly reveal to us the glory of Christ here, that he indeed would be praised not just this day, but forevermore. In Christ's name I pray, amen. When I look at this resurrection account, I'm arguing this is really the beginning of a clearer explanation, revelation, if you will, of the glory of Christ, and hence I've titled my sermon, The 
revelation of the resurrection. In here, I'll just organize it this way. There's going to be a new day, a new discovery by these disciples, and then a declaration, really, of where this faith comes from. Let's look at this first, this dawning of the new day as it begins. Verse 1, it says, this is indeed the first day of the week. And Mary Magdalene comes, and note here, it is still dark. John, quite often, if you read through his gospel, as Jeremy pointed out, he'll use words that convey more than one meaning. It's intended. This darkness and light theme is a metaphor that's been used a lot in John. I think he's still using it here. It really was dark, but it's also dark in a spiritual, metaphorical sense in the minds of those who came to the tomb, as we soon will discover. Mary Magdalene is mentioned first. The death and burial of Jesus was a dark hour. Luke tells us even in the afternoon from probably noon to about three, there was a darkening, physical darkening in the sky, which again sets the scene for the point of the darkness of the world and the death of Christ. The brightest hours... On that day of crucifixion were the darkest. Well, it's still dark physically and metaphorically to some degree. Jesus is buried, but this darkening is going to turn to dawning. John indicates first in his gospel here, he points out Mary Magdalene who comes, why it's still dark, to this tomb. Remember, the gospel writers are not trying to provide us with a complete historical documentary from a Western point of view. His goal here is thematic. There are elements that he's going to put in this narrative and even somewhat loosely chronological, but they're there to advance a theme. His theme has been consistent throughout his gospel and very clearly stated in 20 verse 31. It is written so that you will believe. If you don't get anything else out of this, beloved, this is a call to believe. See the gospel and believe. This belief, as we'll talk about, is is more than that first awakening. It is a growing of confidence in this very truth of who Jesus Christ is. And may I say it one more time, he is Lord. Mary is not the only woman who goes to the tomb, but John features her. You can put the other gospel writers together to put the full chronology as we like to do in Western thought. From Matthew, you're going to find a mention of Mary Magdalene, but it'll also mention another Mary. In Mark, Mary Magdalene is mentioned. Mary, the mother of James, is mentioned. Salome is mentioned. In Luke, you have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Jonah, and 
there are others mentioned. So we don't know precisely how many women were coming. There was a group. But every one of the gospel writers mentioned Mary Magdalene. And John specifically points out Mary Magdalene because he highlights her. And we'll see that next time. His point is, and as you'll see as the text goes on, He's going to feature Mary Magdalene and an encounter that she has as an eyewitness with Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. This eyewitness account adds credibility to it, and in particular when the women are mentioned and featured, because in that culture, that typically wouldn't be done. And so if you were writing a false narrative, you would leave in that culture, you would have left that Aside, But the reality was the women were there on their way first to go to the tomb to continue with the burial process of Christ and the anointing of his body. But back to our text, I want you to note here, not only does he begin by featuring women and particularly Mary, But he also notes a time indicator, and I think this is significant. He says it is the first day of the week. Stop for a minute and think. We have to put ourselves in in their place. He could have referred to this day, that is, John could have referred to this day as the third day, right? I mean... The Old Testament prophets predicted this particular day and called it the third day. Hosea 6.2 is an example. On the third day, he will rise up. The preaching of the gospel early on oftentimes referred to this day as the third day. If you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the gospel and he gives what many agree that is a creedal statement, that is a statement that the church would have used quite a bit, perhaps in song or just repeating as a statement, a creed, if you will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read it for you, I delivered to you first of importance what I also received. So this is what he's saying and what he received. This receiving is what we would call this creedal statement, and here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, which I'm going to point to at the end if I get there, by the way. Notice how he relates the resurrection of Christ to the Scripture, in accordance with the Scripture. But this third day is mentioned. He, was, he died, he was buried, and raised on the third day. John doesn't use that terminology here, though. He says instead, it is the first day. The first day is what we refer to as today, (laughs) Sunday, right? That's what he's talking about. And in fact, if we read on in chapter 20, notice in verse 19, on the evening of that day, what day? The first day of the week. This is that scene where they're in the upper room, the doors are locked. Christ appears. 
And then notice down to verse 26 in chapter 20, eight days later. That is, it would be on the first day once again. He is there. Jesus makes a number of post-resurrection experience, post-resurrection appearances, should I say. All of them are on this day, that is, the first day of the week, time and time again. He's there for 40 days, and yet they only see him on the first day of the week. This practice of the appearance of the Lord first on Resurrection Sunday, as we might say, the first day of the week, led to a fundamental shift in the worship of these Jews here. Prior to this resurrection, the day of worship would have been on the last day of the week, the seventh day, or we call it the Sabbath. This change of worship here in uh, and what dawns here in the resurrection is a recognition that the, the requirements, the ceremonial requirements of the law have been fulfilled. In fact, a new day has dawned, a new day of worship. It is the indeed, the, indeed the first day. It is not the seventh day. It is not the Sabbath day. I'd argue it is now going to be called the Lord's Day in honor of his resurrection. And let me give you a little context for that as Paul teaches this concept to the church at Colossae. Many of us don't focus on this enough, the importance of this emphasis of the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. The ceremonial aspects of the law, all of them have been fulfilled by Christ. Look how Paul treats it in Colossians chapter 2. And you could jump down to verse 11. He begins by talking about circumcision, which is a physical reality, but it points to a spiritual truth which has been fulfilled in Christ. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having, in other words, you're united with him, and that's the emphasis there, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It it points to a spiritual reality. These were symbols that had a purpose to point to the substance who is Christ. He's going to use that very terminology here in context. So look at it here briefly as we look. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in the uncircumcision of the flesh. He's using that by way of analogy, right? It's also an object lesson, but it was part of the law that needed to be carried out. This is how you were, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our violations of what? Of the law. 
verse 14. By canceling that record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands. What's the debt that he took care of? Death. Where did he take care of it? On the cross. It is what? What's the word? Finished. That's what's going on. All of those legal demands that are there that you constantly break, Christ fulfilled them all, paid for them all, all of that charge that would otherwise be charged against you, which could be charged against you today, any day, and tomorrow, all of them were canceled by Christ. It's finished. It means something. Hence, the cross is great glory. He set these aside, and here's the terminology, nailing it to the cross. When you confess your sin, it is a recognition that every one of them have been pounded into Jesus' hands and feet. By doing this, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. That's the glory of the cross. They thought they were putting Christ to shame. He put every one of them to shame. And so what's the conclusion to this? Therefore, verse 16, then let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. This is detailing some of the aspects of the ceremonial law, the Mosaic Code, which have been fulfilled in Christ, and therefore all of that has been fulfilled in Him. So if somebody wonders why you're eating shellfish, it's simply they don't know the Scriptures and the power of God, in short. All of those have been fulfilled in Christ, and we are not under the judgment of the law. Why are you not under the judgment of the law? Because it's been nailed to the cross. Remember that. That's good enough. Point to Christ. Look to Him. But notice here, it includes also this Sabbath that's mentioned. You're not under the Sabbath law anymore. It's been fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath law pointed to the rest that you would have in Jesus Christ. It is finished. It is accomplished. You can rest in him. And to make it clear, the terminology I like to use, verse 17, these, what? The law are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. That's what you need to remember. The substance is Christ. The Sabbath law was just but a shadow pointing out our transgression of it. Christ fulfilled it, and indeed he is the substance for which this shadow speaks. So now, each first day of the week, God's people are invited to gather together to celebrate the finished work of Christ. This is practiced by the apostolic church and still practiced today. You thought some people think you gather together to, to hear a lecture or to hear some good music or to go to a show or whatever it might be. But the God's people gather together to celebrate the finished work of Christ. 
to glorify him. Yeah, there's aspects in which we do and so forth. You can read through. I'll just give you a couple highlights. You don't have to turn. I'll give it to you. But the history book of the church soon begins to describe this very day as the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, when they were gathered together to break bread. The breaking bread is a euphemism, if you will, for communing with Christ, taking the Lord's Supper. They gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. And then Paul talked to them. He was intending to depart the next day, but his preaching went on until midnight. <laughs> so anybody who complains about my long-winded preaching, you haven't heard nothing yet. <laughs> I couldn't hold a candle to Paul, so I'm not going to even try, but nevertheless. In fact, one guy listening to his sermon, not only fell asleep, but fell out the window and, and died. Uh, fortunately, Paul had the ability to raise people from the dead, but I don't have that apostolic <laughs> strength. Nevertheless, they were meeting on the first day of the week. This became the tradition of the church, not a law, but the love, the love of Christ to celebrate this day, the confirmation that all is finished on the cross. There is no su more suffering servant. He is finished. He has accomplished. He has fulfilled all righteousness. The church would gather together, and Paul writing to one of them in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside to store up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. And this is, brings out this tradition of giving. When would you give? Well, when you gather together on the first day of the week, on Sunday, if you will, the church gets together and they, ha they also collect resources for the ministry to help others as well. The final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation which is an explanation of Jesus Christ. This same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John reflects on, his, on Patmos in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It's a beautiful Revelation to read of Christ. And, and you get the setting where John was. Here he is worshiping as the church has begun to do on the Lord's day. And then it becomes a common terminology. We typically don't talk about it in our culture as the first day of the week. We think of Sunday in our culture kind of sadly, I guess, as the last day, right? It's the part of the weekend well, perhaps the church should change the mindset, at least among us. This is the beginning. It's not the end. This revelation of Christ, his glory is on display. It is a new day that has dawned. The glory of his resurrection is going to be seen next in this discovery that the disciples make that John records. If you notice back to our text, there's three that are mentioned and pointed out and featured. You have Mary, John, and Peter. These are three eyewitnesses to this 
resurrection event, initially the artifacts here, the condition of the empty tomb in the wake of Christ's resurrection. There's a progression that's, that goes on here, if you notice the text, in how these facts are considered and unfolded. There's a problem that Mary first identifies and that the tomb is empty. This is a fundamental truth, by the way, that, that needs to be answered. Why is it empty? We're, we're looking backwards and hopefully from a biblical perspective so we know, but not everyone is. This tomb is, is empty. We can read from the other gospel writers that there was a stone in front of this tomb, that there were armed guards guarding it, that it was sealed. Mary knows that. It's still dark. The day is dawning. She's looking. She can now see, and there's no stone as she expected. The door's wide open. It would be like coming home to your house and seeing your front door this afternoon wide open. It would be a little unnerving, wouldn't it? Because you expected it to be closed. You don't know what caused that, but it is of concern, and I don't know what you would do. It just depends on your circumstance. A woman in that day, I can see her response is she needs to go get some help to investigate what in the world is going on, so she's going to run and talk to the disciples. Her thought about it, of course, is, well, somebody opened up this tomb and somehow accomplished this because maybe they were grave robbers and took this body. She, she, she's bewildered quite a bit. As she's thinking through it, all of the potential explanations of why this tomb is empty begin to fall apart as John recounts each person's observation during the course of this narrative. As I mentioned before, the women were the first to know about the empty tomb, Mary in particular. She's puzzled. So she goes and she says to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John, as we've demonstrated before, her thoughts is, notice the text, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. She doesn't really have a thought of the fact that Christ has risen from the dead, which, again, we're looking backwards, we're saying, why in the world? Because she goes there expecting a body there for her to complete this anointing, and this tomb is gone. And so, her first, without really even thinking about it, somebody must have gone in there, taken this body, and, did, and done something with it. The body's gone. Well, then John and Peter run to the scene. It's interesting here in the 
in the way they describe it, John and Peter running together and this other disciple beats him. Um, he's not bragging about his ability to outrun Peter, I think. It's just a true narrative of, of, of how things unfolded. That's his point. Clearly, John was younger than Peter and more fleet of foot and was able to arrive the tomb first. So as he arrives then, he's the next on the scene in this narrative. It says that he, verse 5, he stoops and he looks in. He sees some cloths laying there, but he doesn't go any further. He doesn't actually go into the tomb. So here you have Mary first noticing that the tomb is opened up, right? She, she doesn't get great detail. And then here you have John provides a little bit more detail. He notices there's some cloths still lying there, his linen cloths that would have wrapped his body. This observation, by the way, takes out any idea or concept that uh, Mary had initially thought of. Someone took the body. It wouldn't, that, that, that wouldn't happen. Why? Because if they took the body, they wouldn't take the time to take off the linen clothes. I mean, what are you, you going to do that for? And, and if you're engaged in robbing, if that's who it is, they know it's not the disciples because she goes back to the disciples. They don't know where the Lord is. So this would be somebody with some sort of nefarious reason, a grave robber, and there were grave robbers of that day. The grave robber, what is he going to rob on a dead body? Now, you and I probably don't think much of it, but these linen cloths would have been worth a lot. They didn't have China Mart back then, okay? You just couldn't buy clothes easily or any kind of material like this. This would have been very expensive and hard to come by. And beyond that, then the spices that were wrapped in them, you think, well, I wouldn't want that. No, that, that, that again would have been something incredibly valuable, especially if you're destitute. Those items would be of great value. You wouldn't just unwrap the body as a grave robber and leave the very artifacts why you would come. You wouldn't come to get the body. You would come to get the stuff. So he certainly wouldn't leave that behind. He might take it all off and pile it up. In any case, the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are there, but there's no body. Step three, we're provided a little closer look and a greater detail. That's verse six. Simon Peter, then he finally arrives, out of breath, no doubt, and he goes into the tomb. He says, the text says he saw them lying there, the linen cloth and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The, the word actually used for saw with Peter is a word that we would use for a careful examination. Okay. Mary has a cursory look. John, a little better glimpse. But Peter, he's going in and he's making this careful examination. And it is explained in the text. He actually finds this face cloth folded and in a separate place 
<coughs> by itself, separately. The face cloth here would be what we might think of as a shroud, if you will. You wrap the body tightly and in great honor in that culture, you would have had a shroud of sorts that wrapped around just the face itself. A large cloth that wrapped around the entire face and head. It was draped rather than tied tightly. Here, as he examines, he notices that there is this cloth. It's lined separately, and it leaves a clue that this body that's missing must have some unique properties different than what we experience. This body then, for those cloths to be left intact, had a way of leaving that space without unwrapping. And yet, on the other hand, to fold the cloth neatly and place it, it has some material properties to be able to do that. It isn't a spirit that just evaporates out of the wrapping of the body, if you will, because there's also a folding of the cloth. We know that now, and here is certainly a clue, a fact of it, a material explanation of it, of the state of the glorified body, of whom Christ is the first fruits. The state of the glorified body, Paul gets into greater detail. You can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about a body that, like a grain of wheat, is sown, right? A grain sown in the ground, dies, and then rises forth, right? And as it grows, it has a relationship to what it was, but there's also some distinctions. In fact, it's better and more bountiful. That's the analogy here. A spiritual body that has both the physical capabilities as well as spiritual capabilities, supernatural, immaterial, if you will, whatever word you want to use to describe it, essentially to live in and to exist in both domains. That is the glorified state. This is, this is different than the resurrection of the Lazarus, by the way, who was not in a glorified state and who would die. Christ has then the ability in these clothes that are carefully examined, these uh, grave clothes that are carefully examined by Peter he notices these facts. We'll read later on about Jesus just appearing in the upper room, a door that is said to be locked. Now, we're not given great detail about it, but if he can pass from grave clothes, you know, into a body, then going through and appearing in a door wouldn't be much. Also, as I mentioned earlier, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice Christ makes a number of post-resurrection appearances 
on the Lord's day, where is he the rest of the time? Hiding? No. It, it is, I would conclude, and <clears throat> not absolute dogmatically, but I'm pretty sure of it. You make your own judgment on this, but he can transverse between the, both the material and the immaterial world without any trouble. He, he could go between now heaven and earth with ease, if you will. He can transverse in that interim. And in fact, in the eternal state, as John will talk about it in the book of Revelation, <coughs> that's the imagery for those that are in a glorified state in Christ. Remember, this physical world will be burned up with a fervent heat, but it'll be remade, and there'll be a physicality in this world. John talks about a new heaven and a new earth. He talks about the holy city coming down, that there will be a connection in a physical realm and a, in a, and a spiritual realm, in a material and an immaterial I can't go much further than that, and my point isn't to speculate. My point is simply to say that in the glorified state here, we see it first in Christ, that it is a unique state in which can exist in both worlds, and as Christ demonstrates later on in his appearances to his disciples, as we'll look at in this gospel as it unfolds in chapter 20. And 21. It points to the glory of Christ. Let's see this final point here. Back to our text in verse 8. The new day dawns. It's the first day of the week. It changes everything. Mary, John, and Peter come... And their investigation goes deeper and deeper into the reality that this must be a resurrected body. And notice verse 8, John goes ahead and goes into the tomb. He's the other disciple. And then he sees. And notice what his response is. He believes. And then this coda put on there for they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so then the disciples go back home. John, this other disciple here, is said to believe. He's not talking about regeneration, saving faith. John was a believer. But what he lacked was his understanding, right? His faith, his belief in that sense, the content of it. He has a growing faith, but he lacked in his understanding. And this is a problem then. It's certainly a problem now. Jesus had taught them on many occasions. John doesn't record every event, but an example, if you want to see it, is in John chapter 2. Jesus taught them about the resurrection and he ties it to Scripture. In chapter 2, verse 19, looking at the temple itself as an object lesson, Jesus says to, his, to the crowd there, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. No doubt he had communicated that to his disciples. The Jews were his antagonists. They were not his followers. This is the Jewish leaders who had turned him over to Pilate. Subsequently, that we've just looked at. Notice verse 22. <clears throat> when therefore he was raised from the, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus had taught them that he was going to raise from the dead, but he also taught them from where? The scriptures. We don't know precisely exactly how and what in the scriptures. One example many point out is from Psalm 16:10, that God would not, to the Messiah, Messianic Son, leave his soul in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption would be the destruction of the flesh. And how would that occur? Well, there would need to be a resurrection. Jesus had taught them from the Scriptures, and he had also, in his own authority, told them that he would rise again. It would be the third day, and he would rise again. If you remember this big demonstration of Christ's power of resurrection, isn't very distant from this time, this event, and when Christ actually does rise, and everyone knew about it. This is this encounter he has with Martha and Mary in the raising of Lazarus. If you want to see it, look at chapter 11. John chapter 11 <clears throat> He explains to Martha, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. She believed in the resurrection, but she's looking for the resurrection at the end of the age, right? The, the resurrection of the, the just and unjust to at the end of the age. But Jesus points out to her, wait a minute, in front of you is standing in the way he describes himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the question is, do you believe this? And she said, yes. Yes, you, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is this confession for which the Jews crucified him over. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. He is indeed the Messiah. And therefore, he is the resurrection and the life. And then to demonstrate it, verse 43, he cries out again with another loud voice, demonstrating his command, simply this, Lazarus, come out. And could you imagine being there at that event 
And knowing that Lazarus had received corruption, his body was already decaying. And here Jesus makes this declaration that he is the resurrection and life. And to demonstrate it, it's vindicated by this miracle. And the man who died, verse 45, came out. His, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Do you see the distinction in Christ's resurrection and Lazarus' resurrection? He was raised in a natural body, if you will. Christ is raised in a glorified body. This is simply to demonstrate to these people that Christ has the power of life. But what he promises to those who believe, ultimately, they will receive a glorified body. Lazarus doesn't receive that, and therefore he has to be unwrapped, if you will. These cloths have to be taken off because he's bound by them. This is a famous miracle, and particularly in that vicinity of Jerusalem. In fact, they all know about it. It's a common talk. You could imagine witnessing that and near a big city and how the communication would go about that here this man called this one to come to life. In chapter 12, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews learned, that's his antagonist, okay, that Jesus was there. And they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Sin is insane, isn't it? (laughs) Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I mean, that's the only term I can use for the unregenerate mind. It, It is insanity. And Christ will make you sane. That's the difference. I mean, just... This, this whole account, which they testified to, that Lazarus indeed was raised from the dead. They know it. But they're mad because they're following Christ and not them. Peter and John had a front row seat to that particular event and all that preceded. Yet note here, back to our text, They're still deficient in their understanding of who Christ is. They're true believers. They're true disciples, but they needed to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ our Lord. And might I add, in just thinking through this, this is a normal state for anyone who comes to Christ. You have to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And whatever you think about Christ, you're not thinking enough. He's greater than whatever your thoughts are. You will never stop learning, even in the eternal state. I think this is just the beginning of it. And what you do know now will just help you appreciate him more. This, this, is, this is eternal truth. This is eternal life. This is the eternal Christ. And sometimes in their circumstance, like ours, 
you'll have to forget some of the things that you have been taught by the traditions of men. Misunderstanding of the truth. On other occasions, you'll have to learn something that you didn't know before. The revelation of God in that sense here is progressive in that all of it wasn't revealed at one time. It is now, and it is complete. And the last book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which, again, don't get caught up on the, our idea of an apocalypse. The revelation just means the revealing, the explanation of all things. That revelation of Christ is just that. It is in. It is the final disclosure of who Jesus Christ is and the summation of all things. Today, at this point in history, we're looking here at this text with the knowledge of the completed Scripture. We have 2020 hindsight. The facts that are, undis- that are discovered on this day by Mary, John, and Peter, and ultimately others, they're consistent with the truth that Jesus has risen. But these facts don't establish the truth. Jesus does. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the repository of truth. And he has disclosed it to us in his word, the Holy Scripture that you have before you even now. The problem, as our text points out, is... The real problem is not that they didn't have enough facts. They had plenty of facts. Everything was consistent and unique. No one has ever, by the way, no one has ever seen or experienced any of these things that these three had experienced right there. This is unique in all of human history. But their problem is that they didn't yet believe the scripture. Can I tell you this? The salvation, both salvation and sanctification that we would think of in the terms of growth comes from God's word, the Holy Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. Jesus will call for his disciples to be sanctified. How? Sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. They are beginning to believe all of the scriptures. <laughs> they will need to affirm this, and it's, again, we have the advantage of being on this side 2,000 years later. However, to what degree do we, is the question to ask yourself, to what degree do we really believe the Scriptures even now? It is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of the fullness of life in this life to believe Christ, to believe the Scriptures, no matter how dark or difficult the day might be, no matter how disappointing something might be in your past, 
Look to Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And the question I'd have to say is, do you believe? You know, they were satisfied with it. I find it interesting. We'll have to pick this up next time. But the text says that it just simply closes out this little section by saying they just went home. (laughs) They weren't in a frenzy. They weren't frantically trying to figure out all of it. I think what dawned on them finally was the scriptures. Even though they needed more to uh, awareness of that truth, it finally got a hold of them. I don't think it's just John who believed. Uh, I think that's just a statement here. Peter did as well. And others will have that confirmed. But they just go back home waiting for Christ when it's his time to appear again, as he said he would. They believed the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant us great faith in you. Specifically, how you have disclosed the truth, all of it, in your word. I pray that we will not be taken captive by vain philosophies, traditions of men, ideas and ideologies that are against your truth. Whatever the cost, I pray that we will follow Christ and be driven to this objective truth found in your holy word, And by your spirit, I pray to those that are truly in Christ that you will show us your glory and reveal to us a deepening understanding and appreciation of this glorious truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment now to think on these things. Respond directly to Christ as he has spoken to you. Take a moment now. in your hymn book. My faith is found a resting place.
I hope your faith has found a resting place in Christ and Christ alone as revealed in his word. Let's sing this out as Jerry leads us. Let's all stand and turn to 454. My faith has found a resting place. thankful that the Lord was the first fruits to rise from the dead Lord and that we shall follow. And so we ask, well, how should we conduct ourselves and what should we do while we're here on earth? And the psalmist has given us an answer. He says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all ye earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell us of his salvation from day to day. His marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him, all ye earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Father, we thank you for this wisdom and we just pray you would help us to remember these things as we conduct ourselves day to day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.